Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Catalyst. Uh, my name is JR. I'm the teaching pastor here. And I, I just would like to point out that the chat has been going wild this morning on our live stream because Mbop was mentioned last week as a suggested cover, and then it, was, it came into existence. So just a reminder, Nathan loves you very much and takes your suggestions very seriously. So never be afraid to suggest something. Because uh, it could happen, right, Nathan? Yeah. See. Okay. Uh, so yeah, there you go. That was a, that was a delightful start. Uh, I wanna I want to begin this morning by talking about the most popular TV show of all time, which is a show called Law and Order. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, Law and Order has been on for 22 seasons and has over 400 episodes. Uh, but there isn't just Law and Order, as you know. It has it has birthed a number of spinoffs, most famously uh, SVU, right? Law and Order SVU, which has by itself over 500 episodes. And in the whole Law and Order universe, all of the spinoffs and everything, there are more than a thousand episodes of 45-minute-long TV uh, episodes, which which is just unpre- again unprecedented. Uh, and this is a true fact. You know how, like, on Sirius S, uh, XM, like, on uh, the radio, they have, like, the Pearl Jam station that plays Pearl Jam all the time, or the Nirvana station that only plays Nirvana, right? Well, they don't even need that for Law & Order on television, even if there were such a thing, because there is so much Law & Order in existence that there is always an episode of Law & Order on, on some channel, every time of day, every day of the year, uh, which again is staggering. Like no no other television show can come close to matching those kinds of numbers and that sort of of uh, just just cultural presence. Which I think says something about our love of courtroom dramas. That's why I was mentioning that in the pre-show. Right? There's something that we deeply enjoy about seeing a show where. Uh, justice is meted out at the systemic level, right? Not in a vigilante way, though, you know, we enjoy those kinds of shows too if um, ratings are to be believed. But there's something about watching our legal system function in this, I think, a way that we all recognize as idealized, right? It's not, it's not what actually, you know, it's not a, an accurate reflection of reality. But we love this idea that our legal system always does what it's supposed to do and the bad guys get what's coming to them and all of that. And I bring up law and order because the the text that we're going to be looking at today out of the, the book of Micah is actually a, an ancient courtroom drama. And so I just thought it was fun to kind of compare, you know, we love courtroom dramas today, so I wondered how an ancient courtroom drama would hit. So I actually want to, want to just read how this is set up for you here in the welcome this morning, so you can kind of get the framework And then I want to move into a question that will transition us into our worship for today. So this is the opening two verses of Micah chapter 6. And again, uh, you need to hear this as uh, the prophet setting up a courtroom drama. So he says, listen to what the Lord is saying. So this is God speaking. Stand up and state your case against me. Let the mountains and the hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. Okay. The courtroom drama opens with God stepping into the plaintiff's box and inviting the people to countersue, which I think is pretty intense. 
right? God says, okay, I'm about to sue you, but you're welcome. You know, you're welcome to countersue. You're welcome to come up and explain why my case against you is unjust. And then God literally, called, in, in ancient legal systems, you had to have two witnesses to make it all legal. And so God calls as God's two witnesses uh, creation, the mountains and the hills, right? You, the, the, the earth itself is going to be my witness that you have wronged me, okay? So, uh, pretty dramatic cold open, right, before the law and order ancient Israel pops up, right? And so here's the question, and again, if you're in the live chat, uh, this is something I'd love to hear you answer. If you're here in the building, you can hop onto our YouTube channel uh, and get into the live chat and answer if you want, um, because I want to come back to this when we, when we come out of our, our musical worship. Uh, when I tell you this, right, the scene is God has taken God's people to court, and God is bringing a case against God's people. Like, what... What sort of feelings or expectations does that engender in you? What do you think is coming at this point, given that that's how everything starts out? Uh, because I'm willing to bet that there, uh, there's some anxious feelings, right? I was, I was talking to a friend about this sermon, and they, you know, I said, what do, you, what do you think, why would God take people to court? And they said, you know, probably like the contractual stuff, Right? <laughs> Like, we weren't holding up our end of the bargain, and so God's angry at us. And that's what, that's what I, I think what a lot of us expect is God's anger, God's wrath, God's judgment. And so uh, this is a weird way to transition us into worship, but here's what I want to tell you. I promise. What we're going to see today is that God subverts all of those expectations. And what we actually see in the prophet Micah's courtroom scene is that God is better than we thought. God is more loving than we thought. And what we meet here is not an angry God who is full of wrath and judgment, but a heartbroken God who wants above all else for God's people to return to the relationship that they once had with God. So what we have here is not judgment, but invitation. Not wrath, but love. And uh, if you can believe that, if you can sort of stretch your heart and your imagination to encompass that, that's where I'd like us to begin in our worship, the celebration of a God uh, who, above all else and below all else and before all else and after everything else, loves us and is always inviting us back into relationship. Uh, so if you're a guest with us this morning, I just want to say thanks for being here. We're so glad you're with us. Uh, we will be receiving communion a little bit later in the gathering. So if you're in the building, hopefully you grab one of the communion cups from Sarah on the way in. If you're virtual with us, please make sure you collect some elements. It doesn't, ma doesn't matter what they are. Just get some stuff so you can participate with us. And we're just glad you're here uh, because we believe that God has gathered us this morning. And if we'll be open then we'll get to hear uh, what God has to say. Now, we're going uh, to begin by singing a song together, so I'm going to hand it over to Chanel and to the worship team. If you will all join me in standing, uh, we're going to worship. Our, uh, we're in the season of Epiphany, which is the season following Christmas. And so, whereas at Christmas we celebrate that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, in Epiphany we ask the question, what does that mean, right? What does it mean that God is with us? And what does it mean that specifically when we say God is with us, the us is not a small select group of people, but for the whole world, right? Peace on earth and goodwill to all people. 
And so this year, our series has been called Spark, and we've been looking at some of the ways that God ignites our faith, some of the, the core sort of kindling that, that really makes our faith burn bright and hot. Uh, and so we began by looking at the prophet Isaiah uh, and the way that Isaiah imagines uh, the life of faith. We saw a particular person, the servant that Isaiah created, as a way to picture an idealized follower. And, and then also, of course, how Jesus' own life reflects a lot of the, uh, the ways that that servant interacts with the world. And so we saw in that person a sense, a real sense of the idea that the call that God had placed on them was too big for them. And we talked about how that's good because it means it's a God-sized vision and it's one that we can only accomplish when we rest as the servant does in God's spirit. And then last week, we began this second kind of piece of this picture that the series is painting for us by looking at the idea that Jesus is found among the most vulnerable, um, that it's actually when, when God says that God's arrival among us is good news, that specifically that good news is, is first and foremost for the oppressed and those who are at the margins of society. So we're going to actually continue with that idea today. And uh, in order to get at, I think, what we see in the prophet Micah, uh, a question that I think is good for us is the question, what, what is true religion, right? What is true religion? And uh, for a lot of us, I think if you just, if you sort of poll people, you know, what does a religious person do? Uh, you hear a lot of like, well, they go to church, right? Or maybe they're big tithers, or they're always reading their Bible, right? They have a little prayer nook in there where they're, they're praying every morning and reading their Bible and drinking coffee, or, or they do a lot, you know, they do a lot of the different spiritual practices. Uh, when we think about good religion, primarily what we think about is a vertical kind of a faith, right? One where our connection to God is very strong. That, that's, that's good religion. Now, I, I don't want to dismiss that idea, Okay, but I think it leaves out uh, the horizontal component of faith. What, is, what does our faith look like in the world around us? And there's actually for the past, I don't know, I would say it's gotten real bad in the last decade, but honestly, it's been raging since I was a kid. I remember these debates raging when I, I grew up, you know, evangelical. And the debate was whether, uh, whether what is true, the true core of religion is that vertical stuff or whether it ought to be the horizontal stuff, right? Caring for the most vulnerable, uh, being kind to one another, that sort of thing. There was this real debate. And so, so in the last decade or so, that horizontal religion has been labeled by a lot of folks the social gospel. Because again, it, it, evolves around, it revolves around society, how Christians ought to act in relationship to our neighbors and to one another. So how, how we ought to live in a society together. Uh, and that often gets pitted against the quote-unquote true gospel, uh, which is that, that vertical stuff, right, the, the being connected to God. So, so let me give you an example. When I was a kid, uh, the debate uh, uh, for missionaries was, should missionaries do things like uh, address the systemic issues in a lot of the global south, like lack of access to clean water, lack of food, lack of health care, things like that, or should they only focus on uh, running like vacation Bible schools and preaching? right? Um, should they meet the real physical needs of the societies in which they lived, or should they only focus on the spiritual needs and basically, you know, get the people there to pray some version of the sinner's prayer so that it didn't matter if they, like, died of thirst or hunger, they got to go to heaven, right? And again, I can't overstate, this was like a real debate that we had thinking we were, like, spiritually deep, right? And it was like, uh, 
So, so again, social gospel versus true gospel, which I please imagine scare quotes around those terms because, whoa, right? <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. If you've been around Catalyst long enough, you know that we, re- we reject those kinds of false binaries. Uh, we reject the idea that there's some intrinsic or essential difference between our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationship with our neighbors, with the world around us. Um, and again, we, we take our cue from a lot of different places in Scripture. One of them, though, is, is uh, the Scripture for today, Micah 6. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and, and turn there with me. If you grab one of the Bibles out of the back, that's on page 554, and you, you, know, you can keep that Bible if you need one. Uh, I, in the welcome, we talked about how this is a courtroom scene, right? That, that Micah established this as uh, a courtroom drama, and that rather than God being the judge... God is actually the one who has initiated the trial. He's what we, God is what we might call the plaintiff, right? And God is bringing a case against God's people. So, now, for some context about what specifically the people were here, if you were here last week when we talked about Isaiah uh, chapter 9, you remember that Isaiah lived at a time when the, uh, both the northern and the southern kingdoms were allied to the Assyrian Empire, which was like the biggest empire of the day. And they had fallen into their own civil war, so they had been weakened, and that had caused all of this other political turmoil, which had caused some people from you know, Damascus to come over and conquer Israel. And then uh, Micah is a prophet from a few decades later. So let me kind of fill in what's happened in between. Okay? The Assyrians got their civil war figured out, and they went back to being the global superpower. And that meant bad news for that little anti-Assyrian coalition that had been against them. So Assyria conquered all of them, and because they had taken over Israel, Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and destroyed them, turned them into a colony of the Assyrian Empire, okay? Um, So, you know, destroyed their monarchy, destroyed all of their temples and political system, all of it. And... Uh, that resulted in a massive flood of refugees coming down from the northern kingdom of Israel into the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay, as you can imagine, right? If someone came and conquered your country, you would probably, if you could, try to get away, right? And because uh, Israel and Judah were, you know, siblings, cousin countries, um, that it at one time had been one country, uh, a bunch of the refugees fled into Judah. So, so the, the country of Judah, which is where Micah is prophecy, uh, prophesying, has experienced this massive flood of refugees in the midst of a global crisis, and it has resulted in uh, the temple being just absolutely packed. If you're old enough to remember church after 9-11, it's that kind of thing, right? Global cl- catastrophe, lots of social anxiety, people flood the pews, right? So that's what happened here. Massive, massive catastrophe in your sister country to the north, flood of refugees coming down, uh, lots of anxiety about whether or not we're going to be next. And so the temple is booming. It is a good time for religion, right? The, the, the tithe box is overflowing. The sacrifices are just happening all the time. I mean, again, it would be the equivalent here of packed pews, you know, the uh, way over budget giving, uh, people showing up, you know, not just Sunday morning, but Sunday night. And, you know, every time the building's open, people are there. Uh, and God's not happy. <laughs> okay. Which is strange, 
Uh, and if you don't think it's strange, don't worry. The people thought it was strange. Okay, when Micah came to them and said, I have bad news for you, God is deeply unhappy with how you're being. Okay, so again, I, wanna, I, I asked you in the live chat um, if you would, uh, how you would feel about God taking us to court, right? And I had several of you, um, several of you, you answered, you know. Um, some of you said that, uh, Andrew, I think you said you listened to Carmen as a kid, so yours is pretty skewed. You didn't explain that, but if people know Carmen, you probably know what Andrew's talking about, right? Um, a lot of you just expressed that same kind of like anxiety and fear that people, people are generally assuming if God is taking us to court, it's going to be a bad thing, right? So uh, we're going to read in verses three through five how God's case unspools, right? When God gets to take the stand and lay out God's case against the people, here's what God says. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? I mean, what have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me. For I brought you out of Egypt and I redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed? And how Balaam, son of Beor, blessed you instead? And remember your journey from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, when I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness. So God's charge here is that they have been unfaithful, that they have not upheld their end of the covenant. Right? And then God goes through a litany of all of uh, uh, us, I was going to say all the times, a, a small smattering of the times that God has been faithful to them, from the big one, liberating them from Egypt, to preserving them through the wilderness, to delivering them to the promised land. Now, these are all things that happened um, from the perspective of Micah's people hundreds of years ago, right? But here's what God is saying, right? I've done everything to you, for you. I've upheld my end of the bargain. How could you be so faithless? And again, God is saying this at a time when the pews are packed, right? When religion or at least what we might more honestly say religiosity, is at an all-time high. And so you can imagine that the people might be a little salty in their response. And Micah does that for us, right? Micah imagines their response, and it's incredibly sarcastic. Again, uh, the Hebrew and then our English translations don't, don't uh, communicate tone very well, right? It's why you don't like to resolve conflict by, by email, you know, right? Same thing, right? But you can, if, if you know a little bit about the, the culture of the time and how the offerings work, you can actually see a progression of, of uh, increasing uh, absurdity, which cues us in that there's some deep sarcasm going on here. So I'm going to help us out as we read this next part. So, so this is the people responding to God's charge that they have been faithless at a time when the temple is packed, right? So let's read. They say, uh, okay, so you're, we're faithless. Like, what can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings, which they already do. That's, that's, that's part of like temple is booming, right? Um, should we bow before God most high with offerings of yearling calves? which again, they already do. Here's where it starts to get absurd. Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Here's the thing. There are not thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil 
in the whole country at the time, right? So like immediately here, we can tell that they've are, like, they're basically saying, oh, like uh, how many songs should we sing when we come to church? Four? Uh, 11 billion? Right? Like that's sort of the like that's sort of the tone that they're getting here, right? Like we already do all the stuff we're supposed to do, so I guess maybe what you want from us is an impossible amount of things, right? And then here's the kicker. Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? So they keep escalating all the way up to should we offer our firstborn child? Which sounds horrific to us as it should, but here's the thing. In the nations around Judah, child sacrifice was considered a legitimate, if extreme, form of worship. And it was not uncommon in times of great crisis for the king or for the head of the family to offer as a sacrifice the firstborn child. Because those religions operated on a sort of quid pro quo basis, right? That the God would do for you as much as you did for the God, which is why it was great to be rich, because if you were rich, you could offer more sacrifices, which means you would get to stay rich, right? Because the God would do more for you, okay? So here's the thing about what we see in this progression. The people are trying to be sarcastic, right? They're trying to say, get over yourself, God. We already do probably more than we need to to keep you happy, get off our backs. But what they're revealing by that final attempted jab is that they actually think that Yahweh is just like all of the other gods. That so they think that what, what Yahweh really wants at the end of the day is just child sacrifice, even though Yahweh is on the record as saying he's against it, right? They're saying, oh, okay, so you, at the end of the day, what you must really want is just, you know, what we always kind of deep down knew you probably wanted, which is what all the gods want, right? Everything. Friends, I think uh, when we approach this courtroom drama and we are afraid that what we're getting here is the angry judgmental God, I think we're making the same mistake as the people of Israel. That we give lip service to the idea that God is love, that God is welcoming, uh, that God is for us, but we're afraid that deep down, God is actually that vengeful, angry, judgmental God we've always heard about. The sort of quid pro quo God that seems to rule the market. That's, that was Judah's problem, right? Despite the fact that the pews were full and the temple was overflowing with riches and they were doing all of the stuff of religion, they were afraid that deep down it was never going to be enough because they worshiped the kind of God who wouldn't be satisfied until they gave up everything, even their firstborn child. And the thing is, they were, they were absolutely wrong. And it's the, it's the fact that they were wrong that is actually causing the problem. We'll see that when we uh, get into the, the final verse for this morning. The, the actual problem is that they're so mistaken about who God is that they miss what God really wants from them. And so I want to suggest that that might be true for us too. That we 
might be mistaken about who God ultimately is, about the ultimate nature of God. That, that when that sort of baseline expectation that at the end of the day, God actually is cruel and angry and judgmental and only demands craven obedience from us, reveals that we too may be missing what God actually wants from us because we're missing who God actually is. And so I want to invite the worship team back up because I want us to, to hold on that, that bit of uh, misinformation, at least in the people of Judah's hearts, perhaps in our own spirits as well. And I want, to, I want us to sing a song that for a lot of us might be aspirational. It may not be what we really believe. It may be what we want to believe. And that's okay. It's okay to sing songs that are songs that stretch out and reach out for where we want to be rather than where we are. And so I want to hand it back over to Chanel and the team, and I want to invite you to stand with me again. And I want us to sing a song that says true things about God that we might struggle to believe at our cores. And if that's where you are, that's okay. Um, we're just going to sing these together, and we're going to pray that God helps us to believe them together. Would you stand with me? Uh, so if God doesn't want the religiosity, what, what does God want, right? Uh, and, and God thankfully tells us. This, and this is a verse, if you've been around church, this is one you may have heard. It's one of those that kind of gets plucked out. Rightfully so, it's, it's a great verse. Um, but we're going we're gonna to work through it, uh, you know, kind of one, one bit at a time. So God says, when they say, right, what, what do you want? You know, rivers of oil and our firstborn kid. God says in reply, no, O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what God requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Uh, so I want to break, I want to go through those three things that God requires real quick, because uh, again, I think that they're words that actually carry a lot of meaning and weight when you look at them in the context of the whole of the scriptures. Uh, the first one, do what is right. It's, it's this word that uh, it, it's maddening to me because it's the same Hebrew word, but depending on where you look, it gets translated by all these different English words, uh, which I think confuses us a lot. Um, a lot of places, whenever it's talking about our relationship with God, that sort of vertical relationship, it's, it gets translated as righteousness, Okay living rightly with God, being in right relationship with God. It's that vertical thing. The same word, when it's used to talk about our relationship with other people, gets translated as justice. Okay? Justice. Just, right? I mean, which, which again makes sense. Just relationships are fair, equitable, good relationships where everything's in harmony. Um, the problem is, again, like I mentioned earlier, we want to like separate those two things and argue about, you know, what's better, the, the, the righteousness or the justice, and in Hebrew, they're the same word. You can't distinguish them uh, because they're all about living in harmonious, good relationships, whether you're talking about our relationship with God or our relationship with one another. It's all, in, he in the Hebrew imagination, it's all the same idea. It's all, we are the ones that have kind of pulled it apart and tried to argue about which one is better. But to, you know, to, uh, to a Hebrew person, it would be like, which, which side of a penny is worth more, the heads or the tails? And you're like, that question doesn't even make sense, right? Because you can't separate. Like, there, it's, it's, the, it's just the thing. It's just the penny. It's worth one cent, right? They're all. Uh, and it's the same kind of thing. If you try to ask them which is more important, the righteousness or the justice, they'd be like, it's the same word. Like, you're, you're asking, you know, which is, which is more the one or the one, right? No, it's all the same. So, 
to do what is right, to, to do what it takes to live in right, relate all relationships being right. To love mercy. The word mercy, we've talked about this before. It's another one. It's, it's one of those words in Hebrew that doesn't have a good translation into English. It's this word kesed. And it, the best phrase that gets at what it means in Hebrew is covenantal faithfulness. Okay? It's the idea of because you and I are in a covenant together, I have certain obligations. And when I fulfill those obligations, I am kesedin, right? And again, that's why I said we don't really have that kind of a word in English. But in Hebrew, it's used all the time because God and the people have a covenant together. It was, it was embodied at Mount Sinai, and it was, it was, it was most clearly uh, summed up in the, the Ten Commandments, right? You've heard of those? Pretty famous, right? Four of them are about our relationship with God. Six of them are about our relationships with other people, our, our parents, and then the rest of the society. And again, if you were to ask the Hebrews, uh, are the first four or the last six more important, they would go, what? No, it's, it's all of them, right? You don't do like a top five or a odds or even, like, no, like, no, it's just, it's the 10. It's all of them together. That's what sums up the whole of the Torah, God's way. And to try to separate them out and pit them against each other and argue which one is better or what, they just, they just, that, would, that would be so confusing to them. They would not, like they would get what you were doing, they just wouldn't understand why, right? They, they would be so confused about why you were trying to pit some against the others rather than just taking all of them as the embodiment of God's way. It's why when, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? He took two and he said, they're, they're, the two are the one. Right? You, can't, you can't have one without the other. And then the last one, walking humbly with your God, right? is, about, is about choosing to follow God and put yourself in the proper place. I don't get to call the shots. I don't get to decide what is good and right and holy. God does. And in true humility, I am following God and trusting what God says. And so here at the end of this courtroom scene, God says, you know, when the people are like, oh, what are we supposed to do? You know, it just seems like nothing we do is good enough for you. God reveals what the problem is, is that the people are not in right relationship. They're not honoring the covenantal vows that they made to care for the most vulnerable, which in, in Micah's specific context is this flood of refugees that's come down, right? Incredibly vulnerable. They're spending so much time taking care of their own fears and anxieties, by worshiping at the temple and doing all of those spiritual practice things that in times of crisis can give us a sense of stability and security, that they're ignoring the vulnerable around them. And God says, you, you, if you're doing one and not both, then you're doing none. Right? Uh, well, there's, a, <laughs> there's a different place, I think it's in Isaiah, where God is equ- uh, similarly angry because they're, they're doing sacrifices and not taking care of the poor. And God's like, do you think I just like dead animals? Like, like, is that, you, you think I called you to be my people because I didn't have enough cows? Like, I can make cows, right? He's just like, <laughs> I just think it's hilarious because God's like, I mean, who, who do you think I am, right? Like, the cow God? Like, no, that's, that's, that's absurd, right? And this is, what, this is what God is sort of getting at in Micah here, right? I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't call you to be my people to uh, put on a show for me once a week. That's not really that interesting to me. 
right? I called you to be my people, to be my people in the world, to create a more just world, a world that is in harmony with the way I created it to be. And you get to be my special representatives in that. And when you don't do that, it doesn't matter how pretty your prayers are or how good your sacrifices smell, we don't, which we don't do anymore, right? We don't burn animals for a second, right? But you know, uh, it doesn't matter how, how, how uh, catchy your songs are or, or, or you know, how eloquent your sermons are. None of that matters, if you're not being my people. That's true religion. True religion is when the horizontal and the vertical are aligned. We're not pitting them against each other or uh, doing one at the, the expense or the neglect of the other. And so as, as we're moving towards a, a time of response, I want to circle back to those opening lines where it's clear that God has taken us to court. I want you to remember some of those feelings of anxiety and fear that you have, that I had, right, rightfully so. Oh no, it's like getting called to the principal's office, but way worse. And I want you to remember that what we see as we move through this courtroom scene is not a God who is full of wrath and judgment, and vindictive cruelty, but a God who is heartbroken and who deeply cares for the people and who is doing this as a way to invite us back into right relationship, not only with God, but with the world around us. And so I'm going to ask us some examined questions as we move to this table. That is also a place of invitation. We come here because God invites us here. Right? Uh, when we approach the table together, we are responding to God's first act of grace to set this table for us. And so in, in a similar way, I want to invite you to prayerfully examine uh, where you are in relationship with God and with, in, in, with relationship to your neighbor. I'm going to give you these questions and let you consider them in prayer, and then we're going to pray together, and then we're going to receive this communion meal. So, uh, first, uh, think about that vertical relationship. What is the state of my vertical relationship with God right now? Is, is it intimate? Is it distant? Is it non-existent? Is it stale? You know, what, what is the state of my relationship with God right now? Now, what is the state of my relationship to my neighbors?
Now, where do I live in relation to our culture's most vulnerable? Finally, how is God calling me to live in solidarity with the marginalized? What does it look like for that horizontal relationship to be strong? pray together. God, you have gathered us this morning that we might hear from your prophet Micah. Uh, And a scene that that probably created no small bit of fear and anxiety for many of us, this idea of you taking us to court. Uh, And yet we have seen even even in a context that I think by nature conjures uh, feelings of fear and anxiety and worry, we have seen your deep love for us. We have encountered not anger, but grief. And not judgment, but invitation. And so we come to your table this morning with our relationships in in all sorts of states. Uh, For some of us, our vertical relationship to you, our connection to you has become distant and cold. Uh, For others, it's our horizontal relationships that have become stale or uh, ignored. Yet we have seen this morning that that true faith that honors you is one in which those are integrated, one in which we don't have to choose between loving you and loving our neighbors, because to love our neighbor is to love you, and to love you is to love our neighbors. And so as we come to the table today, we receive these elements, and we pray that they would be a spiritual food for us, that in receiving this meal, we might too receive your grace and your love, and that that might compel us to the world around us, wherever we see injustice, wherever we see the world is not as you would have it to be. May your great love for us propel us into the world that you love. We offer these prayers now and we receive this meal together in the name of your son, Jesus. The night that Jesus was betrayed, this is the meal that he shared with his disciples. And it was during that meal that he broke bread and gave it to them and said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it. When the meal was finished, he gave them a cup of wine. He said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take it and drink it. And so now we too eat and drink. And as we do, we remember Jesus' death until he returns. Uh, Now as you're going, you know, this last week and this week is, I know it's a lot of big big high-level conversations. Our our C group this past week had a very good in-depth conversation 
about what it means to identify those who are socially vulnerable and stand with them. But uh, this, is, this is just really big, high-level stuff. And so I want to encourage you to continue to dream big with us and to ask these difficult questions and be okay with not having answers. Uh, because I think if we had ready, available answers, uh, the questions wouldn't, wouldn't feel so big and so difficult. And so uh, I want to invite you to continue in a spirit of prayer and seeking after what God has for Catalyst for us in, in any of the groups, our formal small groups or any of the casual groups we're in, if, even if you're just hanging out with someone who was here this week or watched, you know, watched with us this week or whatever, just have some of those conversations about what it looks like for Catalyst to really dive into uh, living in solidarity with the vulnerable and the marginalized. Next week, we're going to talk more about spiritual practices and specific fasting, which is appropriate as we're approaching up on Lent. Uh, but it's going to be a lot of the same kind of ideas about God really drilling down on what the purpose of spiritual practices are and how none of this is for God's benefit. It's, it's, it's to form us and shape us as God's people. So uh, it's, it's a message that's, that's being strongly communicated throughout this season of Epiphany to us, and I hope we have ears to hear. Uh, so if you'd stand with me, I want to dismiss us with a blessing this morning. Uh, Catalyst, again, I just can't help but think that it's very good news that God says that uh, what pleases God is not uh, how much religiosity we can muster, because I don't know about you, but some weeks it feels like I can't muster very much. Uh, and again, what, what pleases God is when we live in harmony with God and with one another, and that's something that we can do uh, only because of God's grace to us. So as you go this week, would you go in that grace, knowing that you can uh, live in righteous justice and walk in that covenantal faithfulness and live humbly, uh, not because of how great we are, but because of how great God is and how much God loves us. Go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we will see you next week.